Hi, it's Zoe, and boy, do we have a really cool interview for you today. Do you remember 2011 when a specific Four Corners report came out from the ABC? It was called A Bloody Business, and it was an explosive expose of the cattle export trade to Indonesia. On the other end of that report was the person at the head of the Cattle Council who was tasked with responding to it. This was David Innall, my guest today. He was, at the time, the Chief Executive Officer with the Cattle Council of Australia. He did 50 interviews in the first week after that show. He has had a long journey as a leader in advocacy. <laughs> That's advocacy in the agricultural sector. He started off a long time ago after his university career, the policy officer with the New South Wales Dairy Farmers Association. Then he went to work for Meat and Livestock Australia. Uh, and then he was the CEO of the Cattle Council of Australia. Then he went over to the USA, where he was the vice president, or the senior vice president, I should say, for the United Egg Producers in Atlanta, Georgia. What a big journey. <laughs> and then he's come back to Australia, and he is now the chief executive officer of the Australian Dairy Farmers. So he's had a long involvement in the agricultural sector, leading on behalf of members in a very powerful and important industry in Australia. So his insights on leadership and people stuff are really, really fascinating. So as we're about to get into it, if you find this interview valuable and interesting, please feel free to share. It helps get the message out about the podcast and it gives me a good feeling in the heart to know that there are more people listening and it gives you bonus karma points. So let's do it. David, so excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you very much, Zoe. It's great to be here. Yeehaw. So there's a lot going on around the world, but you've had a career that has always had a lot going on, you know, from uh, live ex, dealing with live exports of cattle in Australia, then working at the Cattle Council, then over to eggs in the USA, and now dairy farmers. <laughs> That's like, you're going from the frying pan to the fire to the frying pan to the fire. What has been the most interesting part of that journey for you? You know, it's, um, it, it just occurred to me a few years ago that uh, I've really, and it wasn't necessarily an intention of mine, but I've really stuck to those staple foods of meat, milk and eggs. And, and, and throughout, <laughs> this, uh, throughout this conversation today, I, I'm, there's no question that I'll focus a lot on the live cattle trade. I mean, it's such a public, what happened in May 2011 and, and is still an issue today. Uh, in terms of the public uh, perception and a lot of what went on in terms of that, that issue when the live export trade to Indonesia was closed. Uh, that was a defining time for me professionally. That was a defining time for me personally. Uh, in fact, I married a, a very well-respected meat, Indonesian meat trader while I was over there. So uh, on many levels, that was an important time of my life in the early 2000s. And then, of course, probably the second, the second level that took me to a, another place was spending five years in the United States working for an industry that I had never, when I got on that plane out of Australia, I'd never spent one day working in the egg industry and uh, off I went. It was fantastic. Okay. Well, you started with the tough stuff, so let's go there. Tell us what happened in 2011. How did you get through it? So I was, I was lucky in a way because I was the CEO of the Cattle Council of Australia at the time and uh, clearly uh, as uh, the organisation that represents beef producers nationally, we were always going to be front and centre of that discussion, both in terms of um, media comment, obviously, um, bringing our stakeholders with us, our members, and of course, 
front-facing with the political discussion that was uh, very heightened at the time. But I was lucky in a way because prior to uh, being the Cattle Council CEO, I was the MLA Live Corp, Live Export Manager in Southeast Asia for five years. So a lot of the work that was being critiqued uh, around animal welfare, um, social license to operate, a lot of those projects were in fact projects that I oversaw as the Live Export Manager. So I was able to draw on uh, 15 years or, or 10 years more like of, of knowledge around what happened. Uh, between 1999 and 2005, I made around 40 trips to Indonesia working through those projects. And there's so many layers to that, which we can talk about, but was deeply impacting on me. So this just clarify for people listening. So this is around animal welfare and the live X trade. That was the big scandal that erupted eventually in an ABC Four Corners report. That's what we're talking about, right? Yeah, that's correct. It was the end of May uh, 2011, and it was the ABC Four Corners program, which I think they termed a bloody business. And it was a it was a uh, investigation, if that's the right word, into the live cattle trade into Indonesia. That was nine years ago. Feels like two. <laughs> it, it it sure does. And the media, um, you know, we had some time in the lead up to that program to prepare. We knew that that show was coming and that footage was coming. So both the organisation I work for, as well as other uh, Meat and Livestock Australia, Live Corp, uh, others, we worked very closely together to prepare, uh, working closely with the Minister for Agriculture at the time, Joe Ludwig. And of course, um, right through the right through the supply chain, we had to be be ready, but, it, but nobody could prepare. We're, we had some accusations of not being well prepared. That's not the case. Those projects were, were good projects. Um, there was good people working on those projects. Uh, but nobody could prepare for what came uh, as a result of that program. Oh, yeah, it was enormous. It, live X-Trade got slammed. Anybody who was in the animal production industry got slammed as any sort of bastard, basically. And as the person leading the industry, how did you make it through that? I mean, you said you had time to prepare, but then there's the backlash and the fallout and having to stand up day to day with the media and the accusations, that takes a huge personal toll. How did you get through all that? Yeah, you know, it's, um, it's just about being really true to the message. We always answered every question, of course. We answered them uh, honestly. Uh, we had detail. We, we, understood the, uh, we understood the subject matter very clearly. If there was an answer, something we couldn't answer, we were always very honest about that. But for me, it's just about digging deep, you know. I mean, all, all people, regardless of whatever job we have, everybody has challenging times of their life, no matter who you are. I mean, we all probably saw it with our parents and things that they've encountered in their careers. And to some extent, I drew on that as well. And I saw my parents had their careers. My father was a policeman, my mother was a teacher, and I learnt from them as to how they got through difficult times. So I, I found myself reflecting on some childhood experiences as well. But the media was difficult. There's no question. The questions were tough. They were really painting farming representatives like me as being bad people who knew all about this and were trying to cover it up. There was nothing that we were covering up. That's the reason I would often just say in the media, that's why we were over there. That's why we're running programs. We know that animal welfare needs to improve. There were people would call the office, uh, send nasty emails. Um, some people saying that they hoped that we would suffer a similar fate to the cattle. It was it was it was a oh. bad time. A absolutely, they did. But we had good people around us, and I think for, for us, it was about the camaraderie of industry spokespeople, uh, our respective staff. What's important here, and this will be something I'll also cover during our discussion today, is if you've got a good team around you, it allows 
people in those leadership positions to step outside the daily business, the business of the business for, in this case, a few months and be involved in what was a, a high level issues management uh, challenge while the rest of the staff were able to keep the business chugging along. So that's the important, it's so important to have good people around you. What did you learn through that experience? You know, I've learned that people, it's horrifying how people can be nasty to someone they've never even met. While I personally didn't suffer too much of that, I, I've heard, you know, I'm aware of some messages that other people in the live export trade received at the time. And I've, I've heard some of them on, on mobile phones and I, I can't comprehend how somebody would ring a complete stranger and say such uh, appalling things. But, you know, we have a good relationship with Indonesia. The trade is strong and the trade remained strong throughout. So it wasn't soon after that program where I was up in Indonesia and meeting with the uh, affected people in terms of, because the trade was closed, uh, meeting with farmers and station owners in Northern Territory within, within a week of the program where I was in Catherine, the Northern Territory, having a very heartfelt and emotional meeting with Northern Territory cattlemen. And in fact, I spent the day in the Australian ambassador's home in Jakarta, the day the trade opened with Kevin Rudd and his team preparing those media statements. So bouncing between those issues over a course of just a few weeks was as challenging, but I felt like the 15 or 20 years of my career that had got me to that point was able to see me through. And, and, and I, I look back on it with uh, some pride. That's a, that's good. I mean, it's such an ordeal to get through. I mean, such a public lashing and experience to go through. Backing up even further, so why agriculture and why food production specifically? I, I went to a high school in Sydney uh, where agriculture was a, a real mainstay subject. You drive into the school, the first thing you see is uh, just a few acres of agricultural plot and you see a few cows and chickens and horticultural businesses going on and, and you could study agriculture from grade seven. So I was always interested and uh, uh, studied right through to the end of end of year 12. And then my elder brother uh, went to agricultural university, ag college, and I, I did the same. And I always had an interest in politics and I just never quite knew at that age that you could combine agriculture and politics. Who knew? And then when I saw a, uh, a position advertised, um, uh, in 1990, 1991, for policy officer for the New South Wales Dairy Farmers Association, I jumped at it. I thought, well, that, that to me combines people, combines public policy issues, and combines agriculture all in the one job. So off I went and I was able to get that job and here we are, never look back. It's a very particular context for leadership. So in terms of politics, agavis advocacy in the yeah, ag sector, it. advocacy. You've got it. <laughs> it's a different way to lead than, let's say, someone who's leading an organization to produce a product or a service, where you're representing a group of producers and representing their interests in a political forum. In that context, how have you come to define leadership? I mean, we've covered live export, and, and I found throughout my career a large part of it, particularly in the second half where I was in more leadership type positions, it's when you're doing those media interviews um, and you know that you're particularly, I mean, radio might come and go, but if you're quoted in a, the Australian or the Financial Review, I mean, that's, that's on the record forever. And I, I thought about leadership in the sense that you've got to get out, you've got to say what you know is right, you're communicating your policies. And for me, leadership was around making sure that at all times you're representing your members' views 
sometimes that may not necessarily be a popular view in the general public and it may not be something that everybody's going to agree with and it, and it may be something that you know is going to draw attention from certain political forces or, or different sectors of or interest groups in the community but it's not swaying away from that message and always remembering that we represent farmers so i've stayed grounded from a leadership perspective knowing that that's what we do it's evidence-based uh, well-researched based policy positions evidence-based well-researched policy positions i think that's a piece that that can get lost in the media would you agree with that Yes, it, it can. And, and um, we certainly have seen that's becoming increasingly challenging as uh, farming organisations uh, continue to change. And both at state and federal level, uh, we're finding ourselves a bit more financially under pressure than maybe we used to be. So uh, organisations like ours uh, typically employ less people than they used to. So the issues are bigger. You know, we've got the internet, we've got email, you've got 24 hour news cycle. But most organisations I know are employing half the amount of staff that they probably did 10, 15, 20 years ago. So in that context, uh, we've got this inversion where I feel like there's a lot more pressure. You have to be so much more responsive. Fact-checking, obviously, it's pretty easy with the internet to fact-check everything you say, and that's okay. We, we stand by that. But we don't have teams of policy people behind us. At ADF, we've got one policy person. We work closely with Dairy Australia who provide excellent support as well, but we, we, we don't have teams of people, so you have to you know, work fast. How do you define success then as a leader in this context? If you're, I'm just thinking about this, right? So I'll let you ponder that as I'm reflecting on this at the same time. As somebody who's leading on behalf of members in an often controversial subject area, how do you then measure success? Well, I'll just let you answer that. Yeah, question. sure. I, I, I measure success in three ways. The first, since a large part of my career has been working in federated structures, for me, the first measure of success is that we keep all of the state members as members. We don't have people breaking away as much as possible. We have a unified approach and we deliver outcomes with all members. It's not always easy, of course, to, uh, to get that unified approach. We, there's a broad church of views in agriculture like any other industry. But the first one for me is having all of the members remain as members. Uh, secondly, we are a political advocacy group. So when you're, when you're the organisation that you know the minister turns to in the difficult times, you know you're the organisation the minister calls when they need, really need to understand what the industry thinks. In, in our world, that is absolutely a measure of success. There are a lot of groups who claim to be that group, but when you, you know when you're getting that phone call late at night that says, hey, something's, something's coming and we need to talk to you about it, you know that that's, you're well-placed and that takes time. And thirdly, a measure of success is around the people. These aren't easy jobs, they can be lonely jobs. We don't have large staff around us, so we're exposed to critiquing on a pretty regular basis, internally and externally. So having staff who are well-grounded, uh, human resources consultant said to me once that you know you've done a good job as an organisation when people leave and they're happy, they're leaving on good terms. So to me, that is also the thirdly, that's a measure of success. If I see staff that I've worked with years ago and we're all, it's great to catch up, then I feel like we, we ran a good office. Mm, I, I believe that too. It's one of the things I wrote in my third book, Loyalty, is that 
loyalty in an organization is no longer just longevity in an organization. It's about advocacy so that when people leave, they still are advocating for you as the leader and you and the organization that they were there for. So if you create lifelong advocates as a leader, then definitely a sign of success. One of the things you mentioned earlier was um, a sense of camaraderie got you through the tough times, especially when there was so much scrutiny. How do you foster camaraderie in your teams? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, s sadly, um, sometimes that comes around crises, you know, that's, uh, we find ourselves in difficult times. Uh, I like to get around the whiteboard as much as we can. We staff meetings can be sometimes be just a little clinical, but whenever it's important, uh, I use the phrase water cooler. And at any moment, if uh, something's going on, we'll sit around the water cooler, you know, metaphorically speaking as a staff and just say, hey, just came out of this meeting. We've got this particular issue we need to work on. What do you think about this? What if we approach it this way? Let's brief the members this way. Let's get some, let's get some real conversation going here. Here's some support that we need. It's about also building a coalition of, of, of the willing. It's, um, you know, I'm a big believer in the phrase, people support what they help build. So it's having people both internally and externally walking with you. It's not always possible and you don't always get it right. And I've taken enough phone calls with people who feel frustrated or left out. So I, I get that. We have many, many, many stakeholders and not a lot of people to take those calls. But I build camaraderie by, I think, catching up with, with people who you know that they need to talk about something and they know that they need to bounce something and feeling like that they can just talk at any time on, on what, what's worrying them or they came back from Canberra and they, they can really sense that there's an issue brewing. Hey, let's, um, let's have a coffee and talk about it. And you have to talk it out because these issues are usually multi-layered, they're complex. And, and, and importantly with agriculture, as anybody listening would know, there's usually so much history. Almost never are we dealing with something that's never happened before. Uh, that these issues tend to, um, can, can, some issues or many issues can tend to be recycled and you say, hey, I know somebody who's been through that and let's get, let's get them on the phone. Yeah, it's a, it's a rough sector. Well, it's a fantastic, beautiful sector with deep history and lots of complex issues, that's for sure. And as somebody who is paid to represent members' views and having to stick to those views sometimes, is there a time in your career where you've had your perspective, your point of view, turned around somehow by an experience or what somebody said or did? Absolutely. I, um, uh, I referenced earlier to my time in the United States, and I found uh, for a range of personal and professional reasons that four and a half, nearly five years over there as being a real turning point for me. And uh, what I saw and what, what perspective change for me is in Australia and uh, you know I'm not meaning to uh, speak against how we operate there's a lot of I think Australia has a wonderful culture of as I mentioned earlier sitting around and working things through together but to be uh, frank about it as farming organizations we do have a lot of meetings we have long meetings and you know uh, there might be times when we've even discussed the same issue more than once or even many times the perspective that changed for me is I noticed a, an immediate difference in working for a farming. I wasn't an expat that went to work for an Australian company in the US. I bundled three children under the age of eight onto a one-way flight to Atlanta, Georgia on a Wednesday and started work on Monday for an American, for their national egg um, representative organisation. And it became clear to me within a matter of days 
They don't spend so much time having meetings. If they do, their meetings are shorter and it's very much focused on execution and outcomes. And there were, there were a number of times when I would say to my colleagues in the office, shouldn't we just check with the board before we go to Washington and do this? Or no, no, get, get on with it, they'd say. We're, we're good to go, green, green to go. And, and until, that, until that time there, I'd never heard the phrase, you know, sometimes it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. And uh, I don't necessarily subscribe to that here, uh, but uh, it's a very common phrase over there. And I watch with great interest the headstrong nature of, you know, a different approach. So I think that's an interesting summary, the headstrong approach, like just go on and get it done. What do you think is the, dif- like, what's the difference in Australian culture in agriculture? So, so what I've noticed in, ag- in agriculture here is uh, while you might have an agreed strategy, um, we certainly do through a number of layers uh, come together and just make sure that I, don't know, I feel like we're refining refining the message or refining or, or, or another layer of policy discussion. And like I said, I don't mean to speak against it. I think we set in Australia speak really, we set really robust and well-considered policy. But certainly uh, I learned in the US that once a motion has been carried at a meeting, a decision is X, well, then you really don't need to even talk about it again until you've done it. Do they have the same sort of animal welfare issues as Australia does in terms of social license to operate? Yes, yes, they absolutely do. And in the egg industry, um, I was, it was my, in my time there was, we saw the transition uh, from cage to cage free. And there was many steps there. I, I, I saw that unfolding. And in fact, um, while it's not a precise calculation, one of our members at the time suggested that it would be a 10 to $11 billion proposition to move from cage to cage free. So I saw that happening, um, campaigns against uh, animal activist campaigns against the industry took many guises. Um, some was undercover video in chicken houses. Um, others, others were taking on the retailer and setting up websites that were attacking retailers that were selling uh, caged eggs. And very quickly, it was around 2016, very quickly we saw, uh, I think within a matter of a couple of months and in one day, I think eight, eight retailers in one day made a public announcement of a uh, future objective to source cage-free only, but it happened in, in a matter of months. So we've, we, they absolutely have those challenges as well. Very similar uh, to here, just on a, on, a, on a very large scale. Yeah. It seems like agriculture, uh, and I could be wrong about this, is sometimes chasing behind the animal rights activists uh, in terms of implementing strategies to prove animal welfare. Do you think that's the case or or do you think that agriculture is proactive enough in, in terms of ensuring effective animal welfare? I think it's a, a, a mixture. I think agriculture is proactive enough. There is certainly times, both whether it's environmental or animal welfare. I mean, I, I've always enjoyed uh, a good relationship with uh, organisations that are both environmental NGOs and animal welfare NGOs, preferring, of course, to work for those mainstream, working, you know, having a relationship with those mainstream groups. One of the real challenges we have in agriculture is, I mentioned before, our relatively small staff. So let's say an organisation of 10 people in a farming organisation allocates 5 to 10% of its time to animal welfare issues specifically. That's not even one FTE, one full-time person. Animal activist organisations have many, many, many staff, hundreds of organisations, and 100% of their people, 100% of their time, is dedicated to one issue. 
So that's what you're up against. What I found amazing in uh, the US egg industry is whenever we had discussions with animal activist groups, it was um, always surprising and enlightening to me how much they actually knew about the industry. They were well briefed, they understood, they knew what the issues were, they knew the people, because they have a lot of people, they have large budgets, and 100% of their time for 100% of the people is focused on us. And is it true that the overarching objective for a lot of animal rights organizations is to eliminate mass production of um, animal protein? So, so I believe that's a generalization in the sense that some yes, there's no question some yes. So there are those organizations that are very, um, what you would call animal rights, animal activist organizations, absolutely the end of starting with maybe intensive agriculture and moving on from there. Uh, what, what they do is they pick issues. They pick, they pick industries that they feel, rightly or wrongly, they feel are, are dragging the chain. If they think an industry isn't really stepping up on a particular issue, they go after them. Once that industry uh, moves forward on that issue, then they will turn their attention to somebody else. That's the way they operate and there's no, no great surprise there. But I think agriculture is, it, it has to be, I mean, the, the cage-free issue with the egg industry is interesting because back in the 50s and 60s, egg farmers, they were cage-free. They took chickens off the ground for food safety reasons and put them in cages for food safety reasons, and now they've had to redesign their whole production systems to put them back on the ground again. So it's kind of gone full circle in that sense. Mm. A little bit of a shift away from animal welfare now and uh, back to leadership. As a leader, how do you continue to grow and develop? Do you have specific strategies in place to help keep you sharp and edgy? You know, I'd, I'd love to say yes to that, but I don't. And I, if there's one thing that I know um, that I need to spend more time is on personal development uh, in terms of the time that I do have, whether it's in the car or on aeroplanes or just, you know, generally got some time, some downtime. I've always relied on mentors and the way, uh, you know, I, I consider myself a person who connects well with people. So I'll call a former chairman, I'll call a former... CEO of one of, you know, two jobs ago and ask them how they are and what they're going through and remember when. And, and I still, to this day, maintain, I think, a strong list of half a dozen mentors that at any time I call. I want to talk to them about something, tell them how I'm feeling. And it's amazing how quickly people can engage with their own life advice. And I, and I still regularly phone back to the US and talk to two or three colleagues there and, you know, keep myself abreast of the challenges in, uh, in US agriculture. I mean, a, lot of, a lot of dairy farms in, in North America aren't around anymore, particularly the smaller ones. And hearing those challenges in the state of Wisconsin, there was a time back a year or so ago where there was seven dairy farmers a day in the state of Wisconsin going out of business. It's just tragic. So I've, I, I try to just keep myself grounded by talking to people who know and understand, know these people, and just uh, you know, try and feel my way through by by that rather than so much than off doing uh, training courses, which uh, if, if I had more time, I'd love to, I'd love to do more of. <laughs> we spoke about how we defined, how you define success a little bit earlier. Failure is another side of success. How do you approach failure? What is it a failure that you've experienced that you've learned and grown from? So for me, um, it's around, I mentioned before, around consensus building and policy development, to me, that's the bread and butter of what we do. 
And there's been a, a, num a number of times uh, when I've been a number or a small number of times when I've been involved in some very high profile, sensitive public issues. And I reflect on them and I say, yeah, you know, I maybe could have communicated that better within the membership or I, I should have really included some more people in that discussion, uh, you know, periodically. We do that anyway, but it's a fine line between bringing too many people into a really difficult conversation. It's as long as you have policy in the area, but I just know there's, um, there's a number of times when I've looked back and thought uh, there might've just been a couple of steps there with more time and less pressure, the public pressure of getting out there. I mean, in the live export industry, the live export shutdown, I did 50 media interviews in the first week alone. I must've been a couple wow. hundred in the first 12 months. Uh, I was the first person in the media the morning after that show on ABC News at seven o'clock the next morning. And uh, you're always thinking, I gotta make sure we keep people as well informed as we possibly can. And, and you just don't sometimes get there. And, and, and that really frustrates me. Yeah, that is frustrating. Like just a mounting, mounting pressure and complexity of a situation. You can't always, it's kind of like playing whack-a-mole a little bit. It's like you get that one, that one, that one, and, and something else pops up. It seems like how can you get across all of it? So one of the issues that's also challenging in agriculture, actually you've mentioned some of the challenges, you know, the dwindling resources, the fact that the Workforce has been cut in half. There's ongoing political issues and uh, drought issues and climate change issues and public perspective on agriculture. Like there's a whole range of stuff that feels like it's like a big wave being crashed against agriculture and the people in it. Mental health is a big issue uh, for people in agriculture. What's your perspective on how the sector can increase or improve its mental health? What's your perspective on that? That's a great question. And we've, in fact, opened a conversation around 12 months ago with one of Australia's largest mental health providers. And we just haven't, we haven't fully landed that yet. But what we see is whenever, whenever we publish, we, we have the opportunity through a number of rural publications to print op-ed pieces uh, under our chairman's name and uh, which we'll also do in social media. And we've written a number of times around leadership and mental health. And every time we do that, it's one of our most, you know, retweeted articles or, you know, I'll get phone calls or emails from people that have been through really difficult times. And we're aware of people in our sector who have really had a tough time of it in the last three or four years. And we know that mental health is an issue. It's a difficult one for us to really land projects because, it's not necessarily something that our member organisations come forward with and say, hey, we want to see a mental health campaign. But we know, we, we talk about it internally. That's one of our water cooler conversations is what can we do as an organisation? And in fact, our chairman, to his credit, when he came into the role, he went back to the very first set of minutes of ADF, which is 78 years ago, to see what's the object of the organisation. And we focus so much on you know, on setting policies and, uh, you know, debating policy. And that's all important and, will, and must continue. But the object of Australian dairy farmers is to support the well-being of dairy farmers. And do we do a good enough job of that? I think there's some, some different things we can do to really, really deliver on supporting the well-being of dairy farmers. And, and definitely mental health is one of them. And like I said, we've, we've talked about it and we've opened some conversations, but we haven't landed projects just yet. It's a really tough one because a lot of people go into farming because they like the fact that they can be more isolated, 
<laughs> it's you're free from politics of an office mostly sometimes, and you can be. It really feeds an independent spirit in some ways. But that's that independent spirit is also the thing that can be its Achilles' heel, as you mentioned. Like one of the things that supported you through a crisis is that sense of camaraderie. And when you're in farming, sometimes you're far flung from your comrades. <laughs> it's hard to get that sense of camaraderie when physical distance keeps you apart. And that along, along with the, you know, it must be a stoic farmer is the another myth, I think, that's perpetuated in, in the psyche of the Australian agriculture ethos. I'm so glad you've raised that because and I think that's a large part of why, uh, in our case, you know, hosting our meetings and discussions is so important as well. We're, now we're doing more on Zoom, so that uh, we might be able to even have more of those, which will be which will be good maybe and probably less face to face but it's definitely that sense of camaraderie but uh, i mentioned earlier i talked about the importance of staff but i, I don't i don't want to conclude this discussion without really a shout out to farmer representatives who donate their time typically on a volunteer basis barely get their costs covered come in off the farm sometimes flying from the other side of the country with a stopover somewhere middle of the night a red eye and then coming into a meeting all day to discuss some interesting things, but also at times some not so interesting things, but they, we just need to get through uh, difficult and long agendas with a lot of documents and guest speakers and you know, policy and other staff talking, they might think we're talking at them, not meaning to. So these organisations, we're a bit like the parliament of the dairy industry in a way, and we rely on farming organisations to uh, send us delegates uh, who engage and donate their time, and they all donate their time. They're very generous with their time. No matter when we convene a teleconference or a meeting, they're there. The absolute energy in which they lean into that. Nothing makes me angrier than seeing media criticising the general direction of our organisations when you know that the farmers that set our policy just put their heart and soul into it. And sometimes to their, you know, their personal criticism for doing so. It's absolutely unfair and I don't like seeing people uh, knocked like that because I'm yet to meet any farmer delegate who really doesn't have the best interest of um, agriculture at heart. I agree with that. Every single person that I've had the privilege to meet who works in agriculture in many, many different industries has been so committed and passionate to their work. And it's not just a nine to five job. It's a lifestyle. It's a, it's a whole way of being. And they are incredibly passionate about it. For you, what is it about agriculture that you're passionate about? I really enjoy the richness of the issues. I love the fact that we, every morning you wake up, you don't really know. You might have a list in front of you and you might have a, you know, a calendar of meetings and, and uh, things that you need to do, but there's always going to be twists and turns that come your way. I feel like that suits my personality. I don't think I was ever meant to be an accountant or an engineer or sitting in front of a slide rule and uh, drawing things, but um, I, I, that's what I like. And I, I mean, I like to eat too. So there's nothing, nothing better than working closely with those industries that are providing. And we, and we saw a lot of this, of course. One of the interesting outcomes post COVID-19 environment, if, if we can say that, is now I think the, the real value of agriculture as an essential service has absolutely come to the fore and discussions that we were involved in with the minister directly through the National Farmers Federation alongside Dairy Australia is very quickly uh, borders were um, 
although some border restrictions for some people, uh, there was never any question that food needed to cross the border and those who worked in agriculture needed to cross the border. And it's now the recognition that one of the first, uh, pr the primary objective, other obviously the health of the health of the population is, is so important, but feeding the population became equally as important. And uh, we're an essential service and dairy being a, you know, one of your recommended food groups was, uh, was absolutely front and centre in, in making sure we delivered that outcome with government. I think you're right. That's a fantastic outcome <laughs> or side benefit of COVID-19 is the, is the true appreciation of the fabulous people who are keeping Australia fed. And the, the real respect that comes, that is emerging as a result of that by saying, you know, all of us or many of us could just get sent home and get stuck in our houses and that's our COVID-19 experience. And then there's the health workers out there dealing, putting their lives in line every day to deal with sick people. And then there's the people who are keeping the whole infrastructure going. And it's not that food is integral to health. Like, they're not separate. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's if you think of the role of government, you've got, obviously, there's law and order. And there's obviously the, we've seen the Prime Minister and other state, prem and state premiers uh, constantly around uh, managing the different steps here to deliver a positive human health outcome or improved human health outcome, but clearly ensuring that food was crossing borders. There was no no holdups. A lot of talk around hoarding at supermarkets and things like that. And and uh, you know, the the dairy industry were very proud of the role we played to um, to ensure that we delivered that product every day. Yeah, it's been a it's a really good news story, and I think um, agriculture deserves so many good news stories. David, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing what an incredible career that you've had and some very interesting, difficult challenges. And I appreciate the candor with which you've shared them. So thank you so much. Thank you, Zoe. It's been wonderful. I appreciate the time as well. Wow, what a fascinating story and such fascinating experience. I guess one of the things that I've taken away from this interview with David is how thankless and difficult a leadership job can be. Seriously, you're put under the pump with so much pressure, trying to please so many people as well as maintain a message and support the progress of an industry. It makes it really, really hard and difficult. And I think David's point about building camaraderie is probably the secret ingredient that is most important in this conversation, is surrounding ourselves as leaders with people with whom we can share a crisis, share a laugh, and support each other is most important. So I really want to thank David for sharing his story and insight. It's a very high visible, highly charged political role that he's had in all of the organizations that he's represented. And it takes great courage to share the insight with that. So if you enjoyed this interview, please feel free to share. It would be great to have some comments on the podcast page. The link is in the show notes. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your day. Live well and lead well.